Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. Good morning, and thank you so much for being on the show with us today, Wilson. How are we doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. We're definitely happy to have you here. Um, I think you're one of our first guests that we have uh, from the South, or at least the first one that's going to have uh, a pretty nice Southern draw. So I'm really excited about this. Uh, <laughs> you definitely have a, a very fun story. We're going to cover a lot today. Um, everything from uh, your childhood to your teenage years and your partying years. I believe you have a fun little um gambling casino story that we're going to get to hear a little bit about if you want to share that um and then we'll get to hear about how you recovered and what you're doing in the fitness world so we got a lot we get to cover here today and i'm again i'm definitely excited about that but why don't you start our listeners off with telling us who you are where you're from and what you do for a living yeah sure my name's uh wilson horrell i live in Bahalia, mississippi which is about 10 minutes south of memphis tennessee uh, i have two children i have a 14 year old boy and a 12 year old girl and a beautiful wife named Amanda. I've owned my own um, landscape construction business. It's now a weed control and fertilization company and we do um, industrial maintenance for the last 18 years. And I also work as a uh, software developer for an online notary company. Nice. Awesome. Uh, definitely uh, sounds like you're, you stay pretty busy out there. And speaking of kids, if any of our listeners hear any uh, anything in the background, um, I'm sorry, but not sorry that my three year old is sitting in on this interview. So he's playing executive producer. He's sitting right here, making sure everything goes well. Um, so he might have an opinion from time to time if you hear anything going on in the background. But like Wilson said before we started, that's a good problem to have. And I'm not complaining. Um, so why don't you go ahead and uh, tell us about, I know your first experience with a drink or a drug is at 12 years old. So why don't you go ahead and summarize the first 11 years or so of your life for us? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I, I lived a good first 11 years. Uh, I come from a, a loving home. I have two parents that, that love me very much. Uh, they're divorced parents, but they both, you know, I, I received nothing but support from them. I was always kind of a hyper child, uh, energetic, like to do you know, uh, athletic things more than I like to read books or anything like that. Um, but all was well, I had, had, you know, a lot of friends, a good environment, nothing traumatic, um, nothing really stood out to speak of. Okay. Um, and then, so how does it, how does it work then at 12 years old when you have, when you have your first drink, what, what happened there and where does that kind of go for you? Well, I was always mischievous more than not. Uh, so I was always kind of fascinated with the, you know, people smoking cigarettes and drinking and, you know, my parents had a liquor cabinet. Uh, I, I never got in it, but a friend of mine who was a couple of years older, he was, you know, talking about getting drunk and, and drinking his parents crown Royal. So we got into his, his dad's crown Royal and he got into it harder than I did. I had enough to drink to where, I was, I was drunk. I, di I didn't have like that epiphany that, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this forever. And this was my solution. Uh, it was just something that, that I did. I, I didn't have my real, like, this is what, this is the answer until I was probably 14, a couple of years after that. 
Okay. And then how, how bad does it get for you then at, at 14 years old? Does this turn into one of those like shit, we're doing this every night or does this turn into, we're trying to mask some problems or some inner pain, or is it just like, I'm just going out and partying and fuck it type thing. It's more of a fuck it type thing. Uh, you know, my, it's what my friends did. If somebody's parents could get out of town and, and we could get the babysitter to buy us some booze, then that's what we wanted to do. Um, any opportunity to get to, you know, a field party or a, a party with older people, that's what we wanted to do, but it wasn't an every weekend thing, but it would be if we could make it that way. Now through those teenage years, is anybody in your family or any of your friends ever calling you out? Is anyone ever saying shit, you need to calm down. You need to slow down. You're not even old enough to be doing this. Is, is anybody else saying anything or are you just kind of skating on by? I'm just kind of skating on by my, my mom's got some concerns. My attitude's pretty bad. I'm, I'm really emotional, angry. Um, when I was, I guess, 15 years old, we got pulled over, uh, by the police and I was vomiting out the side of the car. And I remember being on my hands and knees and thinking, Oh shit, I have these brass knuckles in my pocket. I'd been in a fight. A, a week or so before I, I like to do that. And so I, I threw the brass knuckles as far as I could. And I heard them bounce on the street and hit the cops hubcap. Oh, and I just remember thinking, uh Oh, and basically I just woke up on the, my dad's futon at his house the next morning. And I had, you know, a lot of explaining to do. Did did you not, did you didn't get in real, real trouble for that? I did. I did not. I got in, uh, you know, just got a slap in the wrist, the, the privilege kind of trouble that, that we get in. <laughs> now, I don't know if your teenage years were, uh, were the same for you, but you're a pretty big dude. I can't imagine you would have even needed brass knuckles back then. Just a punk ass attitude is what it is. You okay. know, just one of those, I, I want to be, I'm, I'm living in this in, in Germantown, which is, you know, a, a pretty, relatively affluent area and and thinking that i'm living you know straight out of compton or something <laughs> that's an interesting mindset but i think a lot of us a lot of us idiotic teenagers definitely uh live that lifestyle and live that mindset until until we get that rude awakening and shit gets real and then we find out man this is not the life we we this isn't what we should be doing or we find out we're not really about that life so to speak um so I know I know you sober up in 2011, but how old are you at that point? In 2011, I'm 35 years old. All right, cool. So I don't want to jump ahead too much because I know we have some fun stories through your 20s, including one when you're about 21. So uh, to give a little bit of backdrop and to give a little bit of uh, history here, I had a chance to hear your story on another podcast um, when you tell this really cool story about going to visit your cousin or someone who's doing a bull riding championship and you're out in Vegas and you pull a little slot machine and then bang, you know, it's it's payday time. So go ahead and uh, I, I kind of set the groundwork. Why don't you go ahead and tell this story for us? Yeah, man, I'm 23 years old, I think. Uh, Las Vegas, my cousins made it to the world championship of the rodeo and steer wrestling. So we're down there to support him. And I'm playing the slot machines, quarter slots. And, 
you know, about to run out of money, about to go upstairs and take a nap probably. And, and all of a sudden I, I win $2.3 million. Holy shit. Now I, I know, uh, you said you took the, uh, the chunk sum, but that's still, it was a little over a million that you still got after taxes, after the chunk, after everything, right? It was the winning was $2.3 million. I took the lump sum, which was $1.6 million after taxes was about $1.1 million. And then I gave around gifted around 500,000 to my, my family. So I, I had about $550,000 free and clear to, to play with ruin my life with for a 23 year old. Holy shit. That's a, that's a lot of money to just have, <laughs> yeah. at, you know, as disposable income. Um, and I know at part of that story as well, you also mentioned that you were already getting ready to start your own landscape company back then. Um, so, you know, in your twenties, you know, you have a half a million dollars as disposable income. You're getting ready to start up a landscape company. Um, how does, how does drinking, and I don't know if it goes beyond drinking, if other drugs get involved or anything, but kind of go ahead and like summarize your twenties for us, walk us through, if you have any fun, interesting stories for us, um, as far as how bad that your, your twenties got as well. Well, I would say leading up to my to my twenties, I had, I, I was always a drinker, a partier would take whatever pills I could, but I always went to work. Um, so I, I don't know that I would call it a problem at this point. I just, I just enjoy that kind of, you know, roughneck work from seven to five drink until as hard as I can until 10 go to bed and then do whatever I can get my hands on during the weekend. But I was very much into my work. Uh, and I didn't, I never want to be perceived as, as lazy. So it, it wasn't too much of a problem. Ironically, when I got back to, from Las Vegas in between starting my own company, that was going to be like 30 days later, I was working for a guy just looking for something to do because all I was doing was sitting around drinking all day. And I said, I just need something. He said, well, I've got to paint these, these rooftops and I'll pay you 10 bucks an hour. I said, that's fine. So we went out and we're, we're painting rooftops and drinking Budweiser. And he says, here, I've got this, you know, this lore tab and he's got a 10 milligram lore tab. And he, he gives me that. And I had taken lore tabs before, but I didn't really identify with them with like milligrams or what they actually were. I just knew they were drinking pills, you know, happy pills. And I took that thing and, and I saw the light. You know, and I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to, I want to drink Budweiser and roll paint. You know, this is, <laughs> this is wonderful. And so that kind of set me on the path of, of where can I get more of these? Now, does it get really, does it get really bad at that point? Like, um, what do you, what do you start doing to get them? Are you like breaking, are you doing illegal stuff to obtain it or do you just have the money for it anyway? And it just becomes a tough habit. Like where, how does that, how does that go? That's a, that's a good question. It, it just kind of flowed in the direction that, that addictions do, you know, just quietly enough for me not to really recognize it as a, as an issue. Um, you know, two pills, finding 120 count of pills would, would last me, you know, the, the whole month because, you know, one becomes two and then, you know, two becomes four and four becomes eight. Um, you know, and next thing you know, you've got another connection and somebody else to buy from. And, and I have the, you know, I have money so I can buy these, 
these pills. So it's not really a problem as long as there's a supply. Um, but ultimately I got to where I was nodding off from taking too many pills, um, taking too many opiates. And, you know, the alcoholics way is, is never to throttle down. Like the solution was not to stop taking pills. The solution is to start taking different pills that'll keep me awake. And so I start taking a lot of um, Adderall, snorting Adderall, popping Adderall. Um, and then, you know, because I'm alcoholic, I, I take too many Adderall and I can't fall asleep at night. So my solution to that is not to stop taking Adderall, but to start taking Valium to, to get me to bed. And, you know, before I know it, I'm, I'm this, you know, alcoholic Elvis, you know, that works in the landscape industry. Doing your own little pharmacist recipe. We'll take this to stay awake and then we'll take this yeah. to go to sleep and just, you know, figure figuring out your own uh, cocktail, so to speak. And always in search of that perfect cocktail. You said it. I was always like, this is the magic number and I'll stay here. But of course you can't stay there. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, unlike unlike when, you know, a lot of programs out there um, that really discourage telling war stories when you're in the meetings or when you're sharing with others and whatnot out here um, in this podcast, we definitely we enjoy the war stories, mainly because we kind of look back at them. I don't want to say we laugh at them, but we do kind of laugh at them because, you know, at the end, you know, spoiler alert about this podcast, everybody's in recovery and most people have a nice amount of time as well. Um, do you have any fun or interesting war stories from your partying days that you want to share with our listeners? Man, you know, if you wouldn't have asked me right now, I would I would say I, I have a thousand of them, but none come to mind that really stick out. I, I just feel like there's there's so many bad <laughs> mistakes and so many crazy, just wild stories that I, I really have a hard time bringing one to to the surface. At, at any point during the rest of this interview, if any pop out, you can definitely uh, you can completely <laughs> switch your train of thought. And you're you're more than welcome to cut me off because we, we love a good war story, especially from the South, because I have a feeling that they're probably different than a lot of the ones that we heard. <laughs> <laughs> we do things a little differently down here in comparison sure. to some. Uh, now, uh so where, what, what kind of events pretty much transpire for you those last few years? Um, you said you were 33, I believe you said you were when you sober up. Um, so what kind of happens there for you um, those last few years or few months? Um, I know for a lot of people in recovery, you know, a lot of times family members or friends are eventually coming up to us first and telling us, Hey, I think you have a problem or, you know, there's, there's usually something or someone that comes up to us or happens that that brings it to our attention before we actually think or realize that we have a problem. And I say think because, you know, I, I, I believe it's a long time um, that we think we don't have a problem when we clearly do, um, especially while we're in our active uh, in our active addiction. So what kind of happens to you? Is there anybody that's coming up to you and saying, hey, Wilson, um, is this is this is a problem? Um, you're you're a little out of control. You're doing too much, or kind of how how does that happen before you know those last couple of years before you before you find recovery? You know, it was all my situation uh, as far as addiction was all kept pretty well under wraps because I, I kept myself isolated, uh, and I also you know worked so much. the The last eight years of my addiction, there probably weren't. 10 combined days that I wasn't drinking, wasn't not drinking before 8am. Uh, you know, I, I started drinking five o'clock 
in the morning, vodka in my coffee, or, you know, at one point in time when I was going to quote unquote quit drinking, I got to where I would drink twisted teas. Are you familiar with that? There's just <laughs> yeah. like a, you know, they're, I, they're half a percent less alcohol than beer. So I considered that as basically not drinking at all. And I would buy seven 24 ounce twisted teas to drink every morning until noon. Cause I told myself like it was socially acceptable to drink vodka afternoon. Um, so, you know, I was always, there was never a time that I wasn't under the influence and there was never a time where I didn't have pills unless I was out of pills and withdrawing, uh, or decided that I was going to stop doing pills and withdrawing. So my kids, my children prior to my getting sober have never once been in a vehicle with me when I wasn't actively drinking and using. Okay. Um, and I, I think down in the South, I think you're probably not the only person drinking sweet tea before noon. Um, you're probably just the only one that's got <laughs> alcohol in it as well. Well, you're not the only one. You're just one of the only one. Um, but we know, and that's another thing too, that we figure out is we're, we're far from the only one. There's a lot more of us out there like that. Um, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I don't know if your story is, uh, too much like mine in the aspect of when I sobered up, I found out there was a lot of people who were either already on that path or nearing that path that reached out to me, um, after I came public about mine, because they had already either been sober or were, or were seeking sobriety as well. And you'd be surprised who those people in your life are that might just be keeping it quiet as well. They just might not be as open as we are. Um, you know, they might not be out doing podcasts and sharing, but they're still working a great program. They just, they really, they really, uh, really embody the, the anonymity part of it as well. Um, but, and you're right. I've, I've yet to meet someone that's, that's completely untouched by alcohol or, or addiction. I'm, I'm yet to tell somebody I'm an alcoholic and they say, that's interesting. I, I've never heard of that or been around anybody that has that problem. Now, let me, let me ask you this too, because you say that, do you find that, um, I know for, for myself, um, you know, there's, there's, you get a, a few different reactions when you tell people that you're, that you're in recovery, you get those people who maybe, maybe you never met them before and they offer to buy you a beer or they try and hand you a beer at a barbecue or something like that. And you're, and you're like, no, uh, I'm so for whatever reason, if you, if you more than a no, and you just hit them with a, I'm sober, then it's, oh, okay, cool. And they, they move it on and it's like, all right, cool. That's a responsible drinker. Um, you know, that's their, that they are who they are. And then I find that if you have that person who like then comes in with like a bunch of questions, well, how did you know you were an alcoholic? How much were you drinking or how long? I don't know. I find that the people that ask a lot of questions um, about it, nothing wrong with that because I'm always for answering questions. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing a podcast if I wasn't. But I feel like those people a lot of times I don't like to call other people an alcoholic, but I feel like they're asking questions for a reason. Maybe it's because of how many questions I asked when I was trying to, and I'm using air quotes here, but when I was trying to figure things out um, before I sobered up. But I think I think when someone's asking that many questions, I think they're a little bit more than curious about your sobriety. I think they're trying to figure, a lot of times they're, they're just trying to understand how it works because maybe they're thinking about making a decision themselves. Do you ever get that vibe if someone asks you more than just, just one or two questions? All the time. Um, I, I'm pretty vocal about my sobriety. I, I feel like a, a lot of people 
uh, know about it. I'm, I'm certainly an open book. I, I like to remain as I feel more comfortable, the more vulnerable that I am. Uh, I, I feel I feel like it's easier when people know that, you know, I'm a fearful person as opposed to trying to put on a persona of being like a, a tough guy or having anything figured out. So, you know, when you, when you lead with, uh, when you lead with that kind of vulnerable personality, I think people are more apt to kind of open up to you. Um, so yeah, I, I generally feel like we're all kind of in search of, for answers all the time and drinking, you know, alcohol is something that if somebody wants an answer, they, they really want an answer. So if they either somebody doesn't give a shit, whether you're going to have that beer or not, or somebody really, really needs or, and wants to know why you're not having that beer. For sure. Now I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose track of where we were going. So we'll go ahead and get back to, to where you were in your story. So you know, at this point, this is now your your kids have never been in the vehicle with you while you were intoxicated, while you were under the influence. And I'm assuming that when you said that is because now at this point, this is the first time they were or or was something happening there? No, I was just, you know, the, we were talking about the how the addiction and the disease graduated, you know, and escalated through time. Um, and the point that I was making was I couldn't see that I had the issues that I was having. Um, but even once I did get to the point where I knew I had an issue, it wasn't a matter of denial. It was a matter of what difference does it make? I can't do anything about this anyway. Like I'm so far in this hole, the, the last, you know, six years of my, uh, probably the last three years of my addiction, I was going to stop every day. I went to bed at night with fully resolved to never take another drink or another drug again. And then, you know, the, the 5 a.m. scaries hit and I'm out in my car and, you know, I'm, I'm washing, you know, eight or 10 pills down with, with vodka. Shit, you know, I just could not do it. That's absolutely terrifying. That's, that's scary to, to even think about as well. You know, I, I kind of like every time I do one in these interviews, I kind of like really, picture myself and almost like picture the guests doing exactly what they're say they're doing. And I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, it's 5. AM. The sun is barely out. Um, if even out at all and, and, you know, just out there just doing exactly what you say. And it's, it's pretty scary. Cause it sounds like, you know, any, on any one of those mornings, things could easily go wrong. And we might not even be doing this podcast interview right now. Cause you know, it's you're at one point, your heart could just say, fuck it. We've had enough. Um, or any, any, any one of your organs can just like, that's, that's a lot to put the body through that. That's no joke there. Yeah. And, and I would have welcomed that, you know, I, I would have loved to have been able to, to get out of this planet as, as quickly as I could. My biggest fear of, of committing suicide was that I would mess it up and, and wake up in a hospital and, and people would know that I tried to commit suicide, but didn't pull it off. I, you know, I've, I've said that a million times. Um, I've never actually like gotten suicidal to the point where like shit i made a plan and i'm gonna do this or i'm gonna do that and i've never gotten to that point but a million times i've always thought of um like the term i don't know if, even know if there's a real term but like accidental suicide or just like not caring so to speak like there'd be a bunch of times where i'm just like you know driving home it's thunderstorming the speed limit's 60 so i know i should be doing 50 because i don't have the greatest eyes and I'm thinking, nah, fuck it. Let's just continue doing the speed limit. Let's do 60, <laughs> 65, because 
if God says it's meant to happen, then it's meant to happen. Like it is what it is. And, you know, and it, you know, my family will still get paid off life insurance because it'll be an accident. And, you know, I wasn't out there just actively seeking to die that day, but it was just like, I was, I was more than welcoming it if it was going to happen because I just wanted out of the pain. I wanted out of the struggle. And, you know, I thought my family might be better off without me quite a few times before I sobered up. Cause I didn't think I could. And it, it sounds like that kind of been like a similar mind state that you might've had, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, but it, it sounds, and I think a lot of us in recovery kind of have that point where they're just like, fuck it, just come take me. You know, it, it is what it is. Like, I just don't want to be here dealing with this pain anymore. And I think that's some of the, the extreme, the extreme thinking, some of the over dramatization that, that comes with the isms that, that we suffer, you know, I, it, when I think, Oh, I would rather just be dead. You know, I go to that a lot quicker than probably a normal person does. I mean, it's the same thing. Like I, I, I don't ever kind of feel something. I either don't feel it at all, or I feel it to the extremes. Like I'm starving to death three times a day. You know, I'm never like kind of hungry or I'm, I'm completely famished. And if I don't eat soon, I'm going to die. If I don't get this assignment turned in, this work project done on time, I'm going to die. You know, and I think that that kind of suicidal ideation sort of comes with with our disease on some level. Shit, I'm hungry. Where's the nearest gas station? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. Hey, I, that one that one was for you. I, I, I've, I've heard you. Like I said, I've heard your story. I know. <laughs> I know, I know some of, of your gas vices. station food. I know your I know some of your vices. But down south, gas stations are not like what they are up here. It's it's more than a little a little piece of shit hot dog roller and some shitty nachos. You actually have some decent food in a gas station down south. Oh man, yeah. I, I could I could go out to eat every night at gas stations within 10 miles of where I live. <laughs> That's crazy too, because out here, like I don't know if you've ever heard of Wawa and Sheets, but those are really like the only two gas stations that are really acceptable. Every once in a while you'll have one that has like um, some, some family or whatnot that might be like cooking soul food in there might be like, kind of like renting the space in a gas station. But for the most part, gas station food up in the Northeast is like a hot dog roller and some disgusting nachos or a sandwich that's been sitting in there pre-wrapped for like six hours. And like, you're gambling the dice because you're lucky if you'll make it to your destination <laughs> before you have to shit yourself. <laughs> yeah. For, for probably, you know, eight years of my life, it, if it didn't come from a gas station, a liquor store or a drug dealer, it didn't go in my system. <laughs> well, shout out to the three of them who kept you alive, I guess, and, <laughs> and sustained for a while. Uh, so for, for six years, you're going to bed with the intention of, you know, tonight's the last night. Um, and then you're waking up at 5 a.m. and it's not working that way. So why don't you tell us about the last night? that you did go to bed and you didn't wake up at 5 a.m. and you didn't go out to your car and wash wash down that special cocktail you know that last night where you went to bed and it finally clicked and you said fuck it i've had enough this is this is it yeah that was kind of a culmination of events um my i i wasn't able to get my my percocet supply like i, I normally was so my primary dealer was only able to get lore tabs. So I, I just bought 500 lore tabs. You know, I was taking 30 between 30 and 40 Percocet every day. So, I mean, I had to ingest so many at a time that 
the, the lower tab was just making me sick. You know, I would take 10 or 12 of them at a time. And I don't know if it was the uh, uh, acetaminophen or, or what, but I would, you know, vomit pretty often. And after I vomited, I, I didn't know my only option was to keep taking more because I, I then didn't have any in my system and I didn't want to go into withdrawal. Um, but my, my wife and I, my wife at the time had gotten into an argument. She said she was going to leave and take the kids. And I remember thinking if I play my cards, right, I can probably keep her gone for a couple of days. Uh, and that's how selfish and self-centered I am. I just wanted, I wanted everybody gone. I would just gotten a lot of, uh, Adderall. I'd just gotten, you know, the, the 500 lower tabs. I just wanted to be in my area and, and sit on my computer, get my work done and drink. And I, I sped myself into a psychosis to where I, you know, picked all this, you know, the bugs crawling around on my skin and on my face. And, you know, I, I see employees coming into my shop that aren't even there. And, um, you know, I'm just in a bad way. And one night I went to bed and I thought, I've got my, I've got my 38 and I'm going to do this now. Um, so I get up underneath the covers. I put the gun to my head and I'm shaking so bad. I'm, a, I'm afraid that I'm going to miss and like blow my eyebrow off and have to walk around, you know, with that, um, wearing that metal on my face for the rest of my life. So, you know, I put the gun in my mouth and I'm crying and I'm sweating and, you know, everything. I just can't quite do it. I feel like I'm close, but I just can't quite do it. And I get on the floor and I've got the comforter over my head and, uh, I just wake up the next morning and I don't really remember passing out. I don't remember. I just woke up and a guy that has worked with me for all 18 years of my business, who's essentially a family member, but would never enter my, come into my house uninvited for whatever reason came through the back door. He knew that my wife wasn't there. He knew things were not well. Um, and so I jumped up, you know, and tried to put myself back together. Like, you know, when you wake up and you're late for work and hung over or whatever, and I just didn't really know where I was. And I'm like, Hey, Hey, good morning. Like everything's good. And here I am with a gun and a comforter next to me. Um, and I said, this, something's got to give, you know, I, I've, I've got to go to go to treatment. So I, I went and sat in a church parking lot, drank my drink, took my pills, Googled, you know, rehab. I was kind of the, under the impression that like only Hollywood people really go to rehab, but, you know, Hollywood and like crazy people. Um, so I drove myself to, to treatment, you know, and, uh, and stayed there for 23 days. No, stayed there for, uh, five days until my, uh, subutex and my, my subutex, you fam familiar with that? It's like a, it's like an opiate to keep you off opiates, but it, it blocks your receptors. Anyway, you, they keep you pretty doped up for a few days. And once they cut that supply off, I left against medical advice and, um, I was fine. You know, I hadn't drank for five days. I knew I was going to be sober for the rest of my life. You know, I'd gotten everything that I needed from treatment in that five days. And now it was time for me to go home and, and do it myself. And man, I didn't make it from the back door of that treatment facility to the front door of my truck before I grabbed the, the pills that were in my console and, and took about 
five of those lure tabs and washed them down with the 24 ounce Budweiser that had been sitting out there in July temperature for the past five days. And I was off to the races again. Shit. I think, I think a lot of our listeners too, you know, there's very, very, very small percentage of people who are telling that story. Um, and actually, you know, got it right and are going to stay clean at that point. So I think a lot of our listeners are even probably nodding their head thinking, yeah, I'm sure you're going to make it. They might have <laughs> thought you might have made it farther than to the truck, but I'm sure a lot of them were thinking, yeah, sure. He's got this one figured out. We know yeah. how this goes because um, a lot of a lot of us have been in the same boat. Um, so and, you know, that's a really, really scary story as well. You know, it would sit in there with with the gun and the comforter and holy again, one of those moments where I'm just like picturing everything going on. Um, I, I don't know if in, in, in your story and, you know, in, in my story, I like to think you had clothes on, but who knows how that was going <laughs> on. <laughs> um, now, at, at that moment, when when you said, you know, something's got to give before you had walked into the rehab facility. When, when you went in there, is that the first time you ever said out loud to another human being that you had a problem? I don't, you know, I don't know. I remember talking to my dad and telling him that I thought that I needed to go to some sort of somewhere for like depression. Uh, he knew that I drank a lot. He was concerned about me, but we didn't talk about it in terms of alcoholism. So, yes, to answer your question, that was the first time that I admitted to being an alcoholic because I knew the ramifications that come with, you know, once you flip that switch, you can't, you can't unring that bell. That is a hundred percent. Correct. I I'd say that, you know, that's something when I started this podcast, my, my wife told me, she goes, you know, I started the Facebook group and then I started the podcast and she goes, you know, you, you, you've, you've said this shit out loud and now you're doing all this. Like you realize like you can't go back. Right. And I'm like, that's kind of the point on why I was doing this. Like, you know, it's, it's another accountability factor. Like, you know, and, and I use other people as an example, you know, um, you have a, you have a pretty big platform as well. So you might be a bad example, but if, if someone like you were to join the group um, and then just leave the group or whatnot, it would kind of almost, I don't want to say unnoticed, but um, you might be able to get in and out without someone saying anything or without someone blowing up your messenger, your text messages or this and that. But, you know, if I do that, they're going to notice, holy shit, this guy posts every day. He started the group. Where is he? You know, like I can't go back out without answering to a lot of people, which, you know, it. and I'm, I'm completely OK with that. I love the accountability factor. So like you said, once you once you say it out loud, the cat's out the bag. You know, you can't just put you can't just be like, oh, no, I was just kidding. I'm not an alcoholic. I got this figured <laughs> right. out. Like you can sit there and you can bullshit yourself to, to yourself and to others and say, no, I got this figured out. I'm better now. I'm, I'm treated and you can, you can sit there and lie, but we all know that that's not how it works. You know, once you're an alcoholic, you're, you're always an alcoholic and I'm still yet to meet that person that, that identifies as one and then has it figured out and, you know, is cured um, in the aspect of being able to go ahead and drink or go back to their drugs or whatnot. Um, I've never met that person and there's probably a reason why. Um, so uh, the first attempt doesn't work. Uh, what happens after that? Well, I, I, I go home. I, I call everybody 
that I know, you know, they, they teach you about making amends, you know, while you're in, in rehab. And so I'm calling like everybody to, to thank them for, for standing behind me. And, you know, I'm, I'm this new person and it's all going to be different now. And I apologize for any of my behavior or, or acting strangely. And, you know, it's a lot easier to, to make amends when you have, you know, 10 or 12 lore tabs floating around in your stomach and, and you're, you know, getting drunk. Um, so, you know, I, I'm convincing myself, like, it's going to be okay. I just need to, I just need to enjoy this on the way home. And then once I get home, I'll be, I'll stop. <laughs> and it didn't work that way. And, and I'm also with the mindset that, you know, I, I tell my wife, like at the time, I'm, I'm just going to smoke weed. Like I'll be fine. Just, just doing that. And so, you know, the next morning I'm, I'm out hiding in my truck again. Um, and my, my therapist called and I'd asked my, my wife to take the kids and, and, you know, like get out of the house. And he flipped his script. Um, because he assumed that, you know, I would probably try to try to kill myself. And so they made a, they made a big push to get me back into treatment. And I had somebody come, come pick me up and he brought me in a couple Oxycontin and we took a long ride to, to rehab. And I was back in there for 23 days. So that, and that, so that's the time you did it the right way. 23 days is what you were supposed to be in there. Yeah. Well, it kept kind of changing around, but I, I did 23 days inpatient and then I did a lot of time outpatient, but it was, it was an ugly scene. My recovery was, was a long, arduous and, and difficult path as everybody's is, is in their own way. For sure. Now, before we get um, into your recovery specifically, is that the last time to date that you've used a, a drink or used a drug? Yes. Okay. Um, well, definitely congratulations on that. Um, so that's back in 2011. Do you want to say that exact date again? 7-7-2011. 7-7-2000. Is it ironic that the guy who likes gas station food picked a date with 7-Eleven in it? Was that that's unplanned? Right. Has anyone ever brought that to your attention before? Well, I've, I've had the 7-Eleven and I've also had the, you know, the on the dice with the, with the Vegas thing. On the okay. Okay. Yeah. I didn't even think crash. about that one. Look, look at you. Look at you. It worked out. It was like a, a, a double play for you. There you That's go. That's right. See, it, it's all meant to be. It's all meant to be. <laughs> um, so, so you go into rehab for 23 days. Uh, why don't you walk, uh, tell us, you know, what worked for you when you got out? And before uh, before we have you tell that story, I always like to remind our listeners that this podcast is not affiliated with AA, NA, Smart Recovery, any specific rehabs. Um, we're not affiliated with any type of recovery um, specifically. I just support them all. Whatever works for our guests, whatever works for you out there listening, um, I love it and I support it. Um, there's a million different ways that you can uh, that you can get sober, that you can get clean and stay clean. And there's so many under, uh, amazing programs out there. Um, I'm not a doctor. I can't specifically endorse one. However, if it's working and it's helping you stay clean, then I'm all for it. I love it. And I love you for, uh, for being a listener and for being clean. Um, so with that little disclaimer, so to speak, why don't you tell us what works for you and what did work for you when you got home? Yeah. Uh, what worked for me was, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of meetings. I'm in a 12 step program. Um, I was also going to, to inpatient rehab. I, if I wasn't in bed, I was in a meeting. Um, I spent, although I spent a lot of time in bed, 
<laughs> a lot of time in bed, a lot of time crying, a lot of time eating chocolate cake, a lot of time feeling sorry for myself. When I was in bed, I was, I would listen to the big book on audio. I would listen to a, a 12 and 12 on audio. Um, and I'm the, a friend of mine told me that I was the only person he knew that was lazy enough to take a program as, as easy as my 12 step program and dumb it down to have somebody else read it to me. Um, but you know, that's what, that's what worked. I just felt so desperate. I felt like if I can just immerse myself in recovery, I, I'm just too tired to go out for the drugs and the alcohol. Uh, and I, I'm just too lazy to really do anything else. So I did meetings and I listened to, to stuff on audio and I listened to speakers on audio. I would listen to, to NA and AA. And, um, there was, I think X XA or XM speakers is what it was called. And, um, I would just go through one by one and listen to their stories, listen to their stories and, you know, just stayed as plugged in as I, as I possibly could. I, I was too afraid to do anything by myself. Like I remember my truck running low on diesel and thinking, I just want to make it through the day without having to stop and, and have to get out of my truck and pull out my wallet and figure out how to use the credit card. And, you know, I couldn't even use my, my hands and, and brain at the same time. I would have people from meetings go in to buy my cigarettes because I was, it was just too much for me to function in society. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. And I, I will tell you, if it makes you feel any better, you are not the only one that listens to audio. Uh, when I, especially when I was early on, um, I'd be out running, riding my bike and I would listen to like speakers when I would be laying down to go to sleep. I would listen to the big book um, from wherever I left off countless times. Uh, my wife came into bed after me and, you know, she would turn it off or, you know, she would already have been in bed and she would ask me to turn it down a little bit because it was echoing too loud. And, you know, countless times I, I, I went to sleep to that um, partially because, you know, I might have been having a bad day and I needed to hear it um, partially because the, the version that I downloaded, uh, the guy's voice was not very enjoyable. So a lot of times it would genuinely just put me to sleep. <laughs> uh, because he sounded like your typical library book reader. Um, and, and, you know, I'm actually, it's funny too. Actually, I just recently got a new sponsor and um, he wants me to do the first 164 pages. And, and I'm actually back to the point where I'm actually listening. I, I downloaded the audio again and I listen to it when I'm driving as well. Um, Cause that's kind of how I'm getting the pages. Cause it's hard for me to just find the time to sit down and read. Um, but kind of with the whole mentality that meeting makers make it, um, I might not have the time to physically sit down and read, but I still want to be able to get it in so I can listen to it in my car and get the audio, which, you know, to me is just as good because the way my brain works, I'm, I'm like so ADD that like when I when I read something, I have trouble retaining it anyway. I need other people to like kind of almost explain it to me anyway. So hearing it works for me as far as legitimately retaining it anyways. Um, I will tell you as well, uh, a suggestion as well for you. If you like listening to speaker meetings, when uh my first year in sobriety, I was only two months sober. And I went down to Ocean, uh, Outer Banks, North Carolina, and an eight-hour trip there and an eight-hour trip back, I just spent listening to different speaker meetings on YouTube and just listening to people kind of do their thing like an hour, hour and a half at a time. And I found this one guy who not only was dropping so much knowledge, but he was hilarious. His name is Mickey Bush. 
and oh my god he actually even makes a lot of jokes that he was just set up to be an alcoholic like his he's like my name is mickey bush like my parents were setting me up for this shit um but man his he has he's funny he drops so much knowledge there's so many acronyms that he has um there's acronyms to this day that i use that i heard in that in that um like little speaker thing from the beginning like uh two of them that always stick out to me are slip sobriety losing its priority and uh sponsor sober person offering a newcomer suggestions on recovery and like two of those immediately like i was just like wow and you know it and he just goes on for like an hour or so um so yeah if you ever if you're ever looking for another one to listen to and you haven't heard of him he's got some really really good stuff out there mickey bush all right i'll keep that in mind um, and it's funny, too, because every time I forget his name, I just I always remember, like, I always kind of just Google um, a, a speaker with alcoholic name and it always pops up uh, <laughs> Mickey B. Uh, so, you know, you're 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 working the program. And you said you still do. You still work a 12 step program. I do. Yes, I love it. I love it. And and like I said, again, we're not affiliated, but I definitely support those. A, a specifically works for me. So I absolutely love to hear um, when someone finds finds themselves in the rooms and kind of stays there because it really does work you know they say like they say it works if you work it um so we're gonna get into the point uh where now we're gonna start talking about all the badass shit you do in fitness um all, all the awesome stuff you do and, and again i'm gonna try and lay a little groundwork um and I'm, I'm gonna use your own sense of humor that i heard um so you're so you're a big dude and and hold on and let me matter of fact let me read the message that you actually sent because i i love this shit it was hilarious this like gave me the exact energy of who you are so i reach out to wilson and i'm sorry do you prefer will wilson okay i'm sorry all right so i reach out to wilson on on facebook and you know i say you know are you still clean and sober are you still doing dope shit between crossfit and running fitness journey and he says, I'm still clean and sober, sober, doing the dopest shit that an overweight, comma, unathletic, slow waddler can muster. Yes. Like that response is just that's <laughs> that's super awesome. Um, so why don't you tell us, you know, what it is? And I, I remember hearing when I heard your story before you had this club, and I don't want to misquote the numbers. It was like something hundred and then like 50 or 100 where it was. It was going to be to deadlift a certain amount of weight and then go ahead and run a certain amount of miles. Um, and you started off with some amazing goals and you were getting into CrossFit box and you were just doing all this really, really cool shit. So why don't you tell us exactly what those numbers were, what those goals were and and, you know, what you've been doing and what you're kind of doing now as well? Yeah, and I, I it's I appreciate what you're saying. And it's funny to hear somebody call anything that I'm doing uh, badass shit especially, you know, taking under the context of, of who I am and the athlete that I am or am not. Um, when I got sober, I started trying to get, trying to get fit, you know, was going to the, the Globo gym, lifting some weights, getting on the treadmill. Uh, I, I did a couple boot camps and, you know, I've always struggled with weight, always struggled with eating, getting sober, did not help things. Um, you know, a, a lot of people tend to put on weight when, when they get sober. I always say that there's nothing that I enjoy more than seeing a person get fat and sober. Um, when you see somebody that's fresh out of recovery and the next time you see them, they literally look like 
just a spirit has moved into their body. Like you they know, hate the old person. Yeah, right, right. But it's a great thing. You know, and yes. I always tell people, like, don't worry about that. Like, whatever that is, make that the least of your priorities. That will take care of itself. And if it doesn't, the, your new attitude and your new, like, outlook on life will overrun all of that. Um, but I digress. I, I started like Googling CrossFit and I found a, a CrossFit gym and one of the mem one of the owners, his name is Vaughn Rawls. He had a blog and he had a, a club where he was in search of uh, people that he, he called it the 5,400 club, which was 50 miles and deadlifting 400 pounds. And he was in search of people that had accomplished that goal. And that was, you know, it's later been, you know, we consider it to be in, in the same year. And so I thought, I want to try that. Like, I, I think I can get to the 400 pound deadlift. I, I can't run very far, but you know, what the hell, I certainly have a lot of time on my hands and would like to give that a shot. So in my, in my quest to do that, I met all these people in CrossFit and the CrossFit community who were so supportive and so kind and so accepting of me and met me where I was at my fitness level, which was, you know, and frankly, an embarrassing uh, time and place for me. Um, and then I, I was also in the running community and I was accepted into there and the people were so kind and so welcoming in the running community. And you find that typically runners and lifters don't jive uh, you know, you either do one, you you run or you lift. And here I am kind of saying like, I've benefited so much from both of these groups. Like there's gotta be a way to, to mash these people together. You know, the only reason that, that runners don't like lifting and lifting don't like running is because they don't do the other thing. You know, that's how we are. Like if we don't do that, then we think it's, it's stupid. Um, so I set out on the goal to, to deadlift 400 pounds and to run a 50 mile race. And it was one of the, the more fun things that I've ever tried to accomplish. And one of the accomplishments that I'm most proud of. That's, that's unbelievable. And what, what year did you end up accomplishing that? Ooh, that's a good question. I guess probably, um, I guess 2015, something okay. like that. And I also want our listeners to understand um, how tough an accomplishment like that is, because um, as someone who runs and I don't consider myself a CrossFitter because I don't know if, if I if I put in enough time. But like you said, the community is very accepting. But I've done CrossFit um, before I got really, really heavy into running. Um, I went to a local CrossFit gym probably twice a week for probably three or four months straight. So I did my thing. Um, but what really, really makes that challenge hard, and you might be able to speak on this a little bit more, is you can't deadlift 400 pounds without putting on some weight and some muscle and trying to get, you know, you can't be a small guy like me. Like, I'm 5'7", 130 pounds, and, you know, I can, I can continue lifting and lifting and lifting, um, but it'd be, it'd be really, really hard for me to deadlift 400 pounds of my current weight. I would have to get a little bit bigger. Um, I would have to put on some more weight and muscle mass and whatnot. And then to run 50 miles when, when you're a little bit bigger is also hard. So you have to pretty much train your body twice to get in the strength shape and then to get into the cardio shape. So that's what makes that challenge even harder. So I, that's, 
that's where I really want the listeners to understand who who might be out there and can probably already do one or the other right now, you know, with their eyes closed, so to speak, and then understand how what really, really makes that challenge tough is you you pretty much have to train your body twice to be able to do something like that. And it is it is it is a beyond impressive feat. And it's it's pretty incredible to even think about as well. Would you, would you agree with some of that? I, I would agree with, with some of it to the extent that it's, it's less than impressive on a number of levels. And I'm not saying this to sound self-defeating, but a person who's 250 pounds accomplishing the 5,400 is going to have a much better shot at that than the person who's, you know, 150 pounds. Uh, and, and that's because the, the lifting is, is the hard part. The 50 miles, when you take into consideration what I call, quote unquote, running 50 miles, if I was out there running next to somebody like you, we would spend about probably six minutes together during the 13 or 14 hours that I would be out there because <laughs> my running is a lot of walking and waddling and, you know, enjoying. So it's something that anybody can, can accomplish. The only thing setting somebody back would be you know, being underweight, trying to lift 400 pounds. And that's why Vaughn had originally called it the, and sometimes calls it the 5,400 club. And I hate the affiliation club. I hate the term club. I hate it to think about it being anything other than an accomplishment because I don't like the exclusivity of all that. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a great goal in the fact that it gives you something to shoot for and, you know, it also is something that literally anyone can do from the 50 mile standpoint. You know, if you're stubborn and driven and if you, if you have enough drive and gratitude, you can get out there and spend a day and, and get that done. Just, you know, if you're willing to, to be uncomfortable for a little while. I love it. And I, I like the way you, you broke that down as well. Um, Cause I think definitely you did a better job than I did as well of making that sound um, more inviting and more, more accomplishable as well. Um, I know one of my goals that I actually said out loud recently, cause I'm finally getting back in the gym, trying to focus more on strength training is I want to be able to deadlift um, double my body weight before the summer's over. And I'm a pretty weak guy in those aspects. I've never tried to like max out, max out, but I'm, I think, Last time I did try and max my my max deadlift was probably like 150, 160. And this is probably when I weighed like 145, 150 back when I was doing that CrossFit pretty regularly. So for me to double for me to deadlift double my body weight right now, I'd still have to add on um, another plate on each side plus a little bit of spare change. So it's it's going to be it's going to be a tough, a tough accomplishment. Um, but you know, something that I want to continue working at and, and something I want to build towards and I love it. And I've also never ran 50 miles. So if I can get anywhere near and I won't call it a club, but if I can get anywhere near that accomplishment, um, I would love to, to join the, the same, the same reins and the same lines as, as the great Wilson Harrell. Um, because to me, you're a savage <laughs> brother. And I love everything you're doing out there. Um, what are some of, do you have any, do you have any current goals or what, what are you doing? What are you doing fitness related, um, recently? Are you doing more than just maintaining? Do you have any specific goals that you're trying to hit? I have very few goals. I, I ebb and flow as far as what I want to do. And, and I allow myself to, to do that. You know, I, I'll wake up one morning and say, I, I want to, 
I want to shed 30 pounds and I want to run and I want to be a good runner and I, I want to focus on running. And then I'll do that for a little while. And about the time I start making progress, I wake up and I say, I, I want to be strong again. Like I want to, I want to lift weights and I just want to squat. So that's all I'll do is I'll just, you know, focus on that. And so I never really do any one thing for very long. And currently I'm at the Globo gym. I haven't gone to the CrossFit gym and, and over a year I had knee surgery, um, about, you know, eight or nine months ago and the whole COVID thing. So I just kind of lost my, you know, my, my fever for that. Currently I still maintain a membership. And so now I'm just into the whole like meatheaded thing and that will change whenever it decides to change. But as long as I'm into something, I feel safe. You know, as long as I'm not melting into the couch and, you know, living a, a 400 pound life is that's my goal. Okay. Now I, I have two questions for you here. The first one, it might be irrelevant. Those shirts that I'm seeing over your back, right shoulder, they look like they match and it looks like a bunch of them. Are those for your landscape business or do you got something going on? I just love the colors. The, the, the red and blue keep catching my eye. Yeah, I'll send you one. Those are, uh, those are for lift heavy run long. That's a, that's what I was that's hoping the they were for something fitness related that I'm a part of. That's where the, that's where the 5,400 pound, um, idea came into fruition. And Vaughn Rawls is the one who started that. And after I achieved the, the goal of, of the 5,400, then I asked him if I could be a part of lift heavy run long. And so we started the, the lift heavy run long community and the lift heavy run long podcast. And, you know, we have our shirts and whatnot, and it's basically just a, it's a very welcoming community of, of all levels of, of fitness. It's not, it's not about heavy or long. Uh, it's just about being active and uh, being encouraging. Awesome. So Thanks. anyone's welcome. I, I hope to have you in the group. I hope to have all your listeners in the group. Awesome. I will absolutely join the group. Um, you can definitely, I'll give you my address as soon as we hang up here so you can get me one of those shirts. Cause I'm just, I'm already loving the colors and I'm a huge sneaker head and I can think of already like three pairs of shoes that I have that would go perfect <laughs> one of those shirts and I'm loving it. Um, and it's funny because I originally said I had two questions. The first one was the shirt. The second one you kind of actually segued right into for me. And it was going to be that um, your microphone setup is not look like someone who just you know gets gets hit up on facebook messenger to do a a, a podcast <laughs> interview every so often it looks like someone who's doing his own thing so why don't you tell us um about i mean i guess you did kind of explain it a little bit but uh specifically you know what the podcast is about and what kind of stuff you talk about on there yeah that's a that's a good and, and interesting question and for anybody that that listens to the lift heavy run long podcast it's a it, it's a funny question because what we talk about is basically whatever the hell comes to mind. Uh, you know, my, my Vaughn Rawls, my wife and another gentleman, Brian Swanson, it's, it's the four of us. We get together once every two weeks and, and we just visit, you know, a lot of it is around our, our fitness stuff and races that we've run. And, um, and you know, a, a, another good bit of it is TV shows that we're watching and gas stations that we eat at and, you know, it's just a time for us to, to get together and socialize. And with that, we've acquired a, a good audience. Uh, we've been as, as high as, uh, as 26 in, in the, in the world and fitness podcasts. And, um, 
we've been as low as, as having, you know, probably 20 people listen to it. So it's been a wild ride. And, um, you know, it's basically just about, we generally spotlight athletes, you know, usually they're, they're kind of normal everyday Joes that are, that are doing amazing things. Um, you know, there's a lot of amazing people who are balancing a, a lot of life in between that. And so we try to find those people and sit down and visit with them and find out basically what you're doing. We want, we want to know what works. We want to know what, what difficulties they face and we want to know what keeps them driven. For sure. And I, I know you're getting at least one more listener because I'm definitely checking that out as we speak. I'm actually putting it in my bookmark stuff. Um, are you on all the major platforms? Yes. Uh huh. All right, cool. I'm, I'm looking it up as we speak. And, you know, you have at least one more listener in me. Um, I can't wait because that's that's right up my alley. I love that kind of shit. Um, so is there any anything else that you want to plug for our listeners? You got the lift heavy run long. You got you got the podcast. Um, is there a website that goes with that? Um, yeah, you can find any of that at, at, at www.liftheavyrunlong.com. Okay. But really, I, I, I want to plug you and what you're doing. I think this is, this is really a great thing. You know, I was excited to, to get the message from you. I was excited to listen to your podcast about yourself, the episode about yourself. I enjoyed listening to Ashley's story. And I think that it's important that people do things like this. You mentioned that your wife had told you, you know, you're really, there's a risk involved because you can't disappoint people you now you now have up the ante by going going out and going out on a limb and i think that that's a that's an admiral thing to do and i think that it benefits a lot of people and, and you'll probably never know most of the people who been through to but uh, i just always applaud anybody who's willing to step outside their comfort zone whether it be to run a big race whether that's a 5k or a 50 miler or a hundred miler, or whether that's to, you know, start up a podcast. I just think that doing things that make us uncomfortable is very important. Well, I definitely appreciate your kind words there. And, and I can tell you, you know, I'm a poker player. So uh, all pun intended when I say I'm all in with this shit, brother, like <laughs> I, I'm all in and, and I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. Um, I like to think one day at a time, you know, knock on wood. Cause I'm not stupid and naive to think that, you know, just because I'm doing this, oh, I'm, I'm just, I'm sober and it's just going to be easy, but I'm all in from, from the aspect of I'm, I'm, I'm trying and I'm doing whatever, whatever it takes, whatever I got to do. Like I said, I just got a new sponsor. If that's what it takes, um, you know, and even uh, my sobriety birthday again, knock on wood, hopefully God bless one day at a time, 10 days from now uh, I'll have, I'll have three years. And I'm just, I'm just hoping to just continue, continue, continue. And, you know, I just, I just want to keep pushing and keep going. So I appreciate your kind words very, very much. Um, you are beyond inspirational yourself. Um, definitely check this man out, you know, check out his website, check out his podcast. Um, I'm definitely sending you my address as soon as we hang up. Cause I want one of those shirts. I can't wait. Um, it's one of my favorite perks about doing this podcast and having people on a lot of times they have some cool swag and then it gets sent to me <laughs> and I love it. Um, but then I, I show you guys some love too. Cause as soon as I get it, I'm going to take a really awesome picture with some, some nice clean shoes and I'll be putting it right back on social media and tagging the shit out of you as well for everything you got going on. Love um, it. and yeah, I love everything you guys are doing here. Um, 
is there anything for for our listeners out there i always say you know with with every oh and and sorry i wanted to definitely shout out ashley one more time as well because you pointed out that episode and man that episode was so much fun because as you heard in there i used to work with her she used to be uh when I, I when I was managing the last restaurant that I worked at before I sobered up, she was one of my bartenders and she just her story was awesome and unbelievable. And I always had a special spot in my heart because even though I was still actively in recovery or I mean, I was actively in my addiction. Um, she would tell me all the time that she wanted to be clean and she wanted to be sober. She was saying it out loud to other people way before I was. And I always respect and admired her for that. And, you know, it's one of those things that like you know, you continue asking questions. Um, and eventually, you know, it, that that stuff can fall in. So I love that she finally found that path. Uh, and that she's doing so well right now. And she's just she's so much fun to watch on Facebook as well when she's doing her yoga stuff. Uh, she's she's a true blessing. And I love everything that's going on. And I actually just found out that someone I'm working with in a local uh, community is actually uh, her grand sponsor as well. Um, so I love it. It's just like, it's a small world the way everything circles back. So definitely shout out Ashley. Uh, you're, you're doing amazing things, girl. And we love you. Um, now for, for our listeners out there that might be, you know, struggling, they might have some time under their belt and they're thinking about picking up a drink or a drug today. Um, we also have, might have some listeners that are struggling who have not yet put down the drink or the drug for that person who, just left the rehab and just got in his truck and has a handful of Laura tabs and a Budweiser in his right hand before he throws it down his throat and he starts that cocktail and he, he throws away the last five days. Uh, What would you say to that person out there listening? Any advice, experience, strength, hope, things you've learned over the last 10 years that, that might help that person either put down the drink or not pick it up today. I'm as, as a rule, I, I don't give advice because I just don't, I'm not smart enough to do that, but I know that the, the things that have been most beneficial in my recovery have without question been community, um, between community and the act of making up my bed every morning. I'm not sure that anything has, has taken me as, as far as those two things. And by community, I mean, whether it's a 12 step meeting, whether it's a CrossFit gym or a book club or learning to sew or knit or whatever it may be, find other people, um, being vulnerable around those other people, letting them know where you are and touching base with those other people. Um, and as far as making my bed, that's the one time of my day where I'm not allowed to worry. And it's all about gratitude. If I'm going to do anything in the course of a day, it's going to be make my bed and be grateful while doing it. And that's about the only, those are the two most important things that that stand out in my recovery it's funny you point out the making your bed thing so um where i heard your interview your story before i don't know if i actually mentioned this to you but where i originally heard your story was actually on the 10 junk miles podcast um when you did a long run episode with uh sam um on there and i i love it and so i actually just recently earlier this week i interviewed scott coomer who I don't remember if he was in on that interview at all, but he's actually the original host of that show. And um, we were talking about things and he asked me if I'm making my bed. 
And I told him, you know, if I'm being honest, no, I, I definitely couldn't <laughs> lie because my wife was in the room and she could hear. So I definitely couldn't I couldn't lie because she would have just she might have thrown something at me because she doesn't let me get away with that. Um, but I, I told him it's something I want to get better about as well. And it's, it's funny, too, because now two people in a row are bringing up the making the bed. So, you know, it's it's not just it's it's not just being said to me for no reason. You know, it's, it's reminded me, this is just another thing. It's just reminding me that I need to get back to it, get back to the basics. And it's something that I'm going to start working on again. And, um, you know, my wife will probably love that part of my sobriety as well, too, because it'll give her one less thing to do because <laughs> yeah. I can openly admit that when it comes to cleaning around the house, I'm a lazy piece of shit in that aspect. Yeah. Um, but I need to get better and my wife deserves it as well. And progress, not perfection for sure. So it's been so much fun having you on here, Wilson. This has been a blast. It's been a pleasure. I love I love the Mississippi draw that we get from your accent. I love I love the stories of the ups and downs, you know, from from millionaire to going back to hard work and, you know, starting a landscape company, telling us all these crazy stories. Um, thank God that that night in your bedroom with the comforter and the 38, thank God that didn't work out the way it was supposed to that night. Well, let me, let me rephrase. I think it worked out the way it was supposed to. Let's just thank God it didn't work out the way that you originally planned it. Um, you know, I, I think it worked out exactly how it was supposed to. And I'm, I'm glad you found a program. You found recovery. Uh, you found all this awesome shit in CrossFit and running and the fitness world. It's, it's truly a blessing. You are beyond inspiring. Um, I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode today. Um, and, you know, definitely go out and enjoy some nice gas station food today. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully not from up here in the Northeast or just make sure that there's a bathroom nearby. Um, but other than that, I'll quit rambling at this point on behalf of the staying fit. ODAT Facebook page on behalf of the staying fit ODAT podcast, Wilson, we want you to have a wonderful day and all that we ask from our end is that you continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and brother, tell us how you're doing it. One day at a time. I absolutely love it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit Odette. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at stayingfitodaat. You can also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.